Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Some Assembly Required, Chapter 7. Chapter 7 puts us at the next-to-the-last episode in this serialized reading of the novella Some Assembly Required, A Neo-Surrealist Forsaking a Habit for Lent. The nonfiction title of this work, which was completed on April 1st, 1994, was Temptations from the Wilderness 2. It was a writing experiment for Lent. Without too much introductory material because of the length of Chapter 7, I will just share that I've hit one of the points on this particular chapter where, as I mentioned from the beginning of sharing some assembly required, that material from this has been shared in different parts and in different ways in the past on inappropriate conversations. I'll cite three examples for anybody who is familiar enough with the history of the show and gets caught up on something that feels a little bit deja vu familiar. On April Fool's Day of 2010, episode 5 of this podcast was the least of these, and why Danzig's Godless Rocks. It was a reading from this particular novella. In fact, I introduced some assembly required in that show. If nothing else, this rereading of that section of this chapter will have better sound quality than I was experiencing in my first foray into podcasting way back in 2010. About a year and a half later... I recorded a podcast called Child's Play and Imagination, discussing the difference between the ways that me and my siblings, and me and my children, for that matter, would keep ourselves entertained, versus the way entertainment is sort of managed today in childhood, where there might be less imagination and more homegrown varieties of entertainment. And one of the stories that I start off this chapter with is a story that I've shared in more of a non-fiction way in Inappropriate Conversation 66. That came out August 23rd of 2011. I don't have the date for the third reference, but one of the sections in this particular chapter I shared as a blog post, just kind of shared the dialogue and the conversation as a standalone blog post. It was pretty early in the history of the show, so I'm guessing it was somewhere in 2010, 11, or 12 that it appeared. It's a section I call How Am I Supposed to Live Without? And that's probably the title that I gave to the blog entry. So I'll be hitting that material again here in the context of Some Assembly Required, Chapter 7. Tommy had spent most of the morning looking for the perfect glass. He needed a fairly shallow drinking glass with a mouth of at least three inches. More importantly, he needed one that was perfectly clear. No tinting, no ornate decor, no writing. Finally, he settled for a measuring glass. On one side it was marked for fluid ounces... On the other side, at least, it was perfect for observation. He then placed the materials he needed on the dining room table. Vinegar, vegetable oil, food coloring variety pack, a cotton swab, a teaspoon, a flashlight, and baking soda. Tommy then went to work. Moving the chairs away from one side of the banquet table, Tommy set the flashlight near the center so the beam shined through the measurement side of the glass. He moved the angle of the flashlight and shifted the position of the glass several times before deciding to wash and dry the measurer once again. Tommy had specifically asked for white vinegar, meaning clear vinegar. 
although everyone in the house preferred the darker malt vinegar for salad dressings, including him, Tommy had his reasons. He pulled the seal off the new bottle and returned to the table with the clean glass. Once he reestablished the positions of both the measure and the flashlight, Tommy poured vinegar until the glass was slightly more than one-third full. He sealed the remains of the bottle, then carefully gripping a cotton swab, he dried off the interior of the glass, beginning approximately two centimeters above the fluid level line. He took great care to dry the upper section of the glass without wetting the swab directly with the vinegar. Satisfied with conditions inside the container, Tommy opened the vegetable oil and added a similar amount to his experiment. For a moment, he observed the settling process. Oil and water don't mix, he said to himself. Therefore, oil and vinegar don't mix. Satisfied with the process of separation between the two liquids, Tommy left to dispose of his cotton swab. Entering the dining room on his hands and knees, Tommy could see the progress of his work from the best possible angle. It was color time. To facilitate the timeliness of his experiment, Tommy opened the lids to all four colors. He lined them up with yellow first, then red, green, and blue. His early research indicated that too much blue, even green, would cloud the evidence beyond the illumination of the flashlight. With the yellow dropper, he triangulated three yellow drops in the center of the oily upper layer. Although the pressure of the oil flattened the round drops into a pie-shaped circle, the oil could not disperse the colors. Instead, the drops remained with an integrity within the oil. Tommy paused briefly while switching from yellow to red to make sure this particular vegetable oil was viscous enough to hold the food coloring above the vinegar at the bottom third of the glass. Pleased with his progress, Tommy then created a circle of eight red drops around the inner triangle. Returning to the yellow, he made a similar but larger circle on the outer edge of the glass. The drop settled past the midway point of the measure, but still within the oil. Some combined to almost twice the original size. Most drifted down as islands, suspended in the translucent liquid. Tommy picked up the green dropper, but he dropped to his knees before using it. From the floor angle at the bottom of the glass, the light was off-center. Still, Tommy was able to view the subtle separation between the perfectly clear vinegar and the golden-tinged oil, where the colors were floating. He poised over the glass with green in hand, he pinched the dropper delicately, trying to create the smallest drops he could. He'd learned that the harder the grip of the dropper, the larger the size of the drop. However, through a process of pinching and releasing, it was possible to squeeze out very tiny samples. What are those? Louisa asked, intruding where she was not welcome. Hush, Tommy answered. He created a cross of five, three vertical, two horizontal, with the green drops of various sizes. What are you making? Louisa whispered. Cells, Tommy answered. That's not cells. That's food coloring. No, it's cells. No, she responded, taking a tone of voice. It's Easter egg stuff. It's Easter egg stuff, he said, mocking her expression, when we dye Easter eggs. Now, though, it is cells. Louisa watched as Tommy held the blue dropper at a higher level than he had previously tried and indiscriminately scattered about a half dozen blue drops. If you want to help, he said, you could put the tops back on these colors. I don't want to help. I don't want to get implicated in any way. 
then shut up. If I, if I help you out, then I'll get blamed too. Shut up. Tommy kneeled again at the edge of the table and carefully observed the formation of the drops. He was pleased that the colors were still afloat in the oil, leaving the vinegar clear. Get blamed for what? Tommy asked Louisa. For whatever trouble you're about to cause. I'm not causing any trouble. I'm conducting an experiment. What is it? She asked. Healthy. That's what it is. It's healthy. Tommy opened the box of baking soda and stirred it with his spoon. Once satisfied he had sifted the powder, he scooped a shallow layer into the spoon. Holding the spoon just above the glass, Tommy put his fingernail in the middle of the powder and separated about a third of it to the edge. Moving the spoon right to the surface, he pushed this isolated concentration directly into the center of the oil. The rest was sprinkled lightly over the entire surface. After putting the spoon back into the box, he quickly moved to eye level. Just as he had hoped, the large concentration of powder was formed into a ball by the consistency of the vegetable oil, while the lightly sprinkled surface elements remained mostly afloat. The larger concentrate slowly but surely sank into the core of colors. It rested momentarily on top of the indistinguishable cells of yellow and red, and then it sank into the vinegar. The reaction was, of course, immediate. Even his sister was fascinated by the results. Tommy watched across from the flashlight as carbon dioxide bubbling up from the bottom level started to wreak havoc upon the cells suspended in oil. A large gaseous mass of foam pushed its way up through the center of the oil, picking up colors along the way. The turbulence on the surface pushed colors down into the vinegar as well. A foamy combination of oil and bubbles was brewing, both on the bottom level and the surface, leaving Tommy's view of the oily center unabated as colors mingled with the vinegar below and floated to the surface. The smaller particles of baking soda floating down from above maintained the strength of the reaction as they mingled with the vinegar. The cells are exploding, Tommy noted. You can still see the circles, Louisa said. Both were right. Within the oil, the circular shape of the colored particles were preserved. Above and below, though, stormy activity was spinning tornadoes into the viewing area. As in the previous experiments, the colors created a frame above and below the oily center that was too dark to view even through a flashlight. Soon after, Tommy concluded that the reaction had reached its peak, and he again dipped the spoon into the baking soda. Rather than distributing the powder throughout the shallow surface of the teaspoon, Tommy bunched a similar amount on the tip. Then he watched and waited as the continuous movement slowed. What was that? Louisa asked. Tommy couldn't tell whether she was impressed by his experiment or merely mocking it. Malignancy, he answered. You're the malignancy, she said. You don't even know what that means. Tommy dropped the contents of the spoon into the glass. The strength of the remaining vinegar caught him by surprise. The mix quickly overflowed the glass, spreading vinegar, oil, and food coloring off the side of the table. Mom's tablecloth, Louisa said. First the carpet, Tommy said, agitated but concentrating on the task at hand. I'm telling, Louisa said. Shut up, I can fix it. Mom, Mom, she cried. I told you I can fix it. I'm telling. Mom, Mom, what's going on? Danny asked. Looks like we need features in the city, then we're ready, the secretary said. Thanks, Beth. You'd better give Terry a call. Tell him it's about time to break away. What's up, boss? The publisher asked him as they entered the adjoining conference room. Single issue day, boss, Danny said. Andrew Logan was a short man, athletically built and corporately dressed. 
This daily meeting was often his only direct contact with newsroom decision-making. Hello, Sandy, Logan asked, greeting the opinion editor. Hello, what's up with you, Chris? Sunday. Sunday's section, he asked. Just the routine stuff, she answered. Engagements, weddings, divorces, Danny interrupted with a laugh. In that order, one would suppose, Logan added. Terry rushed into the room with a clipboard under his arm and a pen in his mouth. He immediately reached out his hand to shake the publisher's hand. Good to see you, Terry. Good afternoon, he said. Let's get this thing started, Danny said. Features? Something about sports, actually, Chris said. Where are those guys? Danny asked. Bill is starting baseball. Mitch has gone to Dallas, Terry said. Mitch has got a local boy makes good story, and we've got the parents, Chris said. Who's the kid? One of the freshmen at Arkansas. They've advanced in the NCAA tournament to Dallas, Chris said. Sweet 16, Logan added. They play Tulsa tomorrow. His parents have never seen him play in college, Chris said. They tried to get tickets to the opening round of games in the city, but that had been sold out for months. I don't know how, but they have seats in Dallas for Friday. Does page one get a piece of the action, Danny asked. Yet to be determined, Terry said. It's fine with us, Chris said, if we get the jump. Let's go with the color picture from tonight's games. Low and on the front, jump into features. Anything else, Danny asked. Companion travel piece, springtime in Big D. What about Sunday, Logan asked. We're starting early on the Country Music Awards. Reba's hosting, Chris said. Reba McIntyre, Sandy asked. Local Girl Makes Good Chapter 12, Terry answered. Does anyone know the sports lead? It has to be the NCAA tournament. The prep baseball is all preview type stuff. What about opinion? Logan asked. I'm still wrapping up changes in the free speech column, Sandy answered. The offensiveness one? Yes. You're still sticking with it, right? Danny asked. Yes, it will still serve as a reminder that the First Amendment was written only to protect defensive speech. The premise is that no one would have seen a need to protect speech that nobody considered offensive, Sandy said. The changes are going to be cosmetic, Logan said. I just felt we should keep the emphasis political here rather than social. Less two live crew, more Rush Limbaugh, Sandy said. Yeah, the idea is the same. Offending someone or a lot of someones is not protected by the Constitution for regrettable reasons. It is protected for strict constructionist reasons. Terry shook his head, a response that made Logan laugh. What about the editorial column? Danny asked. I'll need some help there, Sandy said. We've been putting off this North Korea thing for too long now. Nuke them, Terry said. Danny and Logan laughed. I'm serious. Let's nuke those bastards before they nuke us. Danny and Logan continued laughing. Clinton's not going to start a war, Sandy said. Who's talking about a war? He could push the button without sending any troops, Terry replied. Have we exhausted all diplomatic options at this point? Chris asked. Everything's at an impasse, Sandy answered. The North Koreans won't allow full inspections. Defending South Korea makes us sitting ducks. A guaranteed Chinese veto makes the UN powerless. Nuke them, Terry said. With all due respect, Logan interrupted, we aren't running a column advocating anything like a war. I think we are still in an explanatory phase here, Danny added. So we should concentrate on suggestions for keeping North Korea in the compact, Sandy asked. Let me get this straight, Logan said. 
They're signed on to a treaty against nuclear proliferation at the present, but they won't consent to routine verification. Some of the verification may be slightly more aggressive than routine because of the posture the North Koreans have taken, Sandy said. I've got a question, Danny said. To what degree can we claim that North Korea is genuinely signed on the dotted line here? It seems to me that they have agreed to a non-proliferation treaty as long as they reserve the right to violate that same treaty at will without repercussions. I'd say that's an accurate assessment, Terry said. So why are we treating them like anything other than a renegade nation, Danny asked. So far, the administration's approach has been A. Maintain North Korea's membership in the agreement. B. Take steps to knuckle them under on a cordial diplomatic level. Should we be treating them like a renegade third world nation? Sandy asked. Nuke them, Terry said. Aren't they in fact acting like a renegade nation? Danny replied. I mean, they aren't manifestly signed to the treaty in light of their actions. Why should we treat them as though they are members in good standing? I agree, Logan said. Let's go without specific recommendations. Instead, use the editorial column to point out this inconsistency in North Korea's position. Then we can recommend that the UN start treating them like renegades rather than allies. I still say we nuke them, Terry said. That's next week, Sandy said with a laugh. What are we going to do, and when, about the AIDS kid? Terry said, returning to a serious demeanor. You tell me, Sandy replied, deathly serious herself. Problems? Logan asked. Yes, we don't know enough about the case to editorialize one way or the other. What's the latest from Duncan? Danny asked Terry. Vicky is meeting with the parents group that is forming. We should have page one copy whether a protest breaks out or not. Terry said. Protesting what? Logan asked. The city state board has concluded that the kid is fit to attend school. We are sure that will have an impact on the community. Did we cover that meeting? Closed session, Danny answered, taking Terry off the hot seat. It's all legal to protect the privacy of the kid. I think Sandy's right. We can't write about this until something definitive happens one way or the other, Logan said. You don't call this kid attending classes definitive? If you live far enough out of town, he could be sitting in a classroom next to your daughter, Terry said. Well, how did he get AIDS? HIV, Sandy corrected. He's just carrying the virus now. Do we know how it was transmitted? Ask Terry, Sandy said. News knows quite a bit that they aren't sharing with the rest of us. Terry? We are holding on to some details until we tie up all the angles. Even if we don't report the family's name, we are still sitting on a potentially dangerous story here, legally speaking. Do we know how this kid got the HIV virus? Logan asked Danny. No, he said. I think that's the worst part about it, Sandy said. If there's going to be hysteria, then the big mystery is the most inflammatory factor. Listen, Terry said, we aren't ready with this yet. And I don't think we need to be fanning any emotional fires, Logan added. All we know is that on the record, he hasn't been sodomized, he hasn't had any blood transfusions, and he hasn't been to the dentist in over a year. 7.30 a.m. Pink Panther Cartoon. Episodes include Extinct Pink. 8 a.m. Movie. Comedy. Who Was That Lady? Dean Martin, Tony Curtis, and Janet Lee star in a freewheeling farce. 
Martin talks Curtis into posing as a government agent after wife Lee catches Curtis embracing another woman. Based on the play. You sounded so upset that I had to come over, Valerie said. Come in, Peter said. Where's Susie? She's down, fell asleep before I called you, in fact. What's wrong? It's Melanie. Pete, Pete, she said imploringly. I don't blame you for thinking that I should have put all this behind me months ago. Valerie ran her hand through the hair above his neck and started rubbing. More like weeks, Peter. Seven months isn't forever, you know. You're overcoming quite a lot. It's not so much her death, though. Is it your boy, then? Um, um, Clint. We were going to call him Clint. Susie's all right? Yeah, she's doing better than I am. So is it Clint? No. Peter started crying. He fought the initial teardrops, but soon gave in to the sobbing. Valerie dropped her coat and hugged Peter closely. You're going to have to say it, she told him softly, because I don't know what's wrong. I'm not sure, he said, fighting to regain his composure. I'm not so sure I know either. Valerie waited quietly. I was thinking about the house today, comparing taxes from this year to last and adjusting for the insurance... I thought you said her policy left you secure. That's just it. We are secure. We don't have to sell the house. So what's wrong? Little things. It's just a bunch of little things. Peter followed Valerie to the kitchen. She poured him a glass of water and fumbled in her purse for a tissue. I haven't been happy with work lately. Maybe it's just me, but I wasn't very happy with the way the board handled my leave. Plus, not feeling the same spark. Not there, not anywhere. And the house? Part of me feels like it might be time to, I don't know, move on. 34 is not too old to change career directions. Finances might not be this secure next year. Susie starts school in just over a year. There are a lot of good reasons to shift gears, cash in the house, Try to move away from my problems, maybe move into some new problems. How far away? Peter smiled. Not out of your grasp, I assure you that. Have you talked with Susie? No, I thought about it for the first time this weekend. Anyway, how, how is she supposed to understand? What about your family? No, uh, after Mom died, Dad hasn't exactly been a fountain of information. Melanie's parents are on top of things, but I... I just wouldn't feel comfortable. Granted. Peter started crying again. These are decisions that I used to make with, with Melanie. How can I possibly get on with my life without her to point the directions? Valerie's eyes started to well, too. Mel and I used to just, I don't know, bounce these kinds of ideas off of each other. I'm here. Here today and any other time. Can I help? It's her house, he said. Him. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Written by Schultes. We are one in the spirit. We will work with each other. We will walk with each other. All praise to the Father. We are one in the Lord. 
We will work side by side. We will walk hand in hand from whom all things come. We are one in the Spirit. We will work with each other. We will walk with each other. All praise to Christ Jesus. We are one in the Lord. We will work side by side. We will walk hand in hand, His only Son. And we pray that all unity, and will guard each one's dignity, and together will spread the news, and all praise to the Spirit may one day be restored and save each one's pride that God is in our land who makes us one. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Scripture readings. Ezekiel 34, verse 17. Now then, my flock, I, the sovereign Lord, tell you that I will judge each of you and separate the good from the bad, the sheep from the goats. Luke 15, verses 4 through 7. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What does he do? He leaves the other ninety-nine sheep in the pasture and goes looking for the one that got lost until he finds it. When he finds it, he is so happy that he puts it on his shoulders and carries it back home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says to them, I am so happy I found my lost sheep. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine respectable people who do not need to repent. Sermon, the least of these, Dr. Calvin Hunter. Right up front, I want to thank the, the Lord God for the musical blessing we have received today, particularly the secular song by Steve and Jerome. It's blessing enough that our youth should be so talented. Their desire to share those gifts is worth even more. I mentioned their song because I think the words that Stephanie Davis wrote for, I believe, Garth Brooks? Garth Brooks says quite a bit to our ministry today. Let me quote, Lord, please shine a light of hope on those of us who fall behind. And when we stumble in the snow, will you help us up while there's still time? The answer to this question is contained in the gospel reading today from Luke. Not only will the Lord God help up those of us who get lost along the way, but he rejoices at doing so. Jesus and Paul after him constantly emphasized to his disciples that worrying about the mundane and the ethereal was not desirable. Jesus taught that God would provide our needs both in this life and afterward. Instead, he wanted his followers to devote their attention solely to the ministry. In this regard, there is a calling. Yes, on the one hand, God will provide for us in our hour of need. On the other hand, he expects us to do likewise for our fellow man. The character in that song promised the bankrupt family that he would check on them when he got into town. Jesus' parable implies that it is incumbent upon the shepherd to seek out the lost sheep. For Jesus, it is obvious, a plain and simple fact of being a shepherd. How strongly does the Lord feel about this matter? Well, to answer questions about the judgment of God, we need only ask ourselves what will happen to those who do not heed his word. Ezekiel faced questions such as this. And God revealed to him the answer. At the day of judgment, the sheep will be separated from the goats.
Jesus further defined the difference between a good sheep and a bad goat before his betrayal in Matthew's Gospel, reading from chapter 25, starting with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, and feed thee, or thirsty, and give thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger, and welcome thee, or naked, and clothe thee? And when did we see thee sick or in prison and visit thee? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. And in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not, for one of the least of these you did it not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Biblical historians refer to Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 to 46 as the great judgment. Jesus tells us that we will be judged by our willingness to help our fellow man. Not only those who have fallen in the snow, but the hungry and thirsty, the stranger and shelterless, the sick and imprisoned. An often ignored element to the great judgment is this emphasis on the least. In each example, Jesus enunciates his expectation that we will help even the least of his brethren. Just prior to the new school year, two of our women's circles attended a conference in Kansas City dealing with urban violence. I met with them afterward. In the midst of workshops on gang violence, domestic violence, street drug-inspired violence, etc., etc., a common element had emerged. Hatred. Our women came back with a strong sense that our society's problems aren't getting too large to handle. No, they already are too large to handle. There is nothing I can say this morning, and there was nothing a hotel full of speakers could say last summer to make the gang problem disappear. There is, on the other hand, 
a great many simple and easy tasks each and every one of us can handle morning, noon, and night. There is a great deal we can do to tackle the root cause of all our evils. Hatred. Easier said than done, right? I understand that reaction. It is easy to say that we are going to start loving and forgiving one another. However, it seems to be quite a leap for most groups, even most religious groups, to accomplish. I know this is true because we asked. Come on up here, Hannah. I want to introduce you all to Hannah Strom. For any in the congregation who don't know Hannah, she is an officer in the Ruth Circle here at the church. After meeting with her group, we decided that we could learn a great deal by conducting a simple survey. Our goal was to contact a variety of groups, most of which identified themselves with a mandate from God. Hannah? Thank you, Reverend. We asked a variety of questions. Most of them asked for a name or identification of a person the respondent most wished were dead, transformed, or never had been born. We wanted to know who they thought was the most reprehensible person alive and how strongly they desired the elimination of that individual. Of course, we had hoped that most groups would stop short of a hit list. We were disappointed. The following groups identified the following individuals as being, more or less, unworthy of forgiveness. Pro-Life Action Committee, Dr. Ross Shelton. Anti-Defamation League, Nation of Islam. NAACP, David Duke. ACT UP, Gay Rights Group, Reverend Fred Phelps. He's based in Kansas. Family Values Coalition, the gay rights crowd. Some groups could not be reached. We didn't have a way of contacting the Ku Klux Klan, for example. A couple of the politically oriented groups we contacted named the President. As you can tell, some of the ones who talked to us at length were capable of picking out a particular individual. Others weren't. In the case of the Monroe Family Values Coalition, they did get more detailed than merely identifying uh, gay rights activists, but never as specific as naming an individual or an organization. Hannah, how specific did they get? Well, Reverend, they were, uh, they were particular enough to describe a hypothetical gay rights activist who carries the HIV virus, uh, lobbies Congress to divert research monies to AIDS, and organizes a grassroots effort to amend the Constitution to grant protected status for homosexual orientation. Thanks both to Hannah and to all the women of the Ruth Circle. The good Lord calls us to a task that is by no means easy. Admonishments like turning the other cheek pose a daunting challenge to the soul. If you doubt the ease and simplicity of striking out at the problems we encounter... Then watch the evening news or read the Sunday paper. For most people, striking out is preferable to walking the extra mile. In the great judgment, Jesus ups the ante further. He isn't asking us to forgive and console an enemy. He is asking us to do so for the enemy. The least of these. The least of these. I suppose it's only natural to conjure an image of a homeless mother and child. Through our regular offerings and special annual offerings, we probably do find a way to indirectly touch the lives of that anonymous mother and child. But I would like to challenge that perception. 
who truly qualifies as the least of these for our local chapter of the NAACP? A resident of the parish homeless shelter or David Duke? Don't most pro-lifers honestly feel the same way about Dr. Shelton? There is an abortion-performing doctor in Pensacola, Florida, so despised by national pro-life groups that a man shot and killed him last year. More recently, a similar assassination was attempted in Wichita, Kansas, the community served by one of our sister congregations. Whatever a member of the local committee may say about the least of these being a sympathetic figure like a cancer patient or a crack baby, I think we all know who they feel is the least among us. I prefer not to criticize another minister, even from a different denomination. However, I'm not particularly shocked that the notorious Reverend Fred Phelps is known throughout the heartland by gay rights groups. He pickets the funerals of AIDS victims. He writes and faxes some of the most hateful letters a grieving family could possibly read. I don't doubt that gay activists would consider Phelps to be the least among us. He hasn't been bashful about pointing an accusing finger right back at them. The war of words between Jews and Muslims wages even in our country. Again, it seems obvious that each group would gladly designate the other as the least among God's brethren. The example I would like to use, though, comes at the expense of the Family Values Coalition. I'm taking this example for two reasons. First, this congregation supports a portion of their agenda. We have worked with a similar group in Richland Parish even more closely. In this manner, we can self-righteously criticize ourselves. Second, I think the actions and words of Jesus Christ have particularly strong application here. Let's be honest with ourselves now. I'm not calling for a show of hands, so you don't have to worry particularly about being honest with one another. I do challenge you, though, to be honest with yourself. For our purposes, let's say that we have been called to visit a patient in the hospital. Is there a disease that we would hope, above all others, is not being carried by this patient? Am I wrong? Or does AIDS change the entire tenor of a caregiving hospital visit? What if the same patient is on medical release from prison, where he is serving a term for sex crime offenses? I'm sure gay rights groups could tell stories about the stereotype we've been sold about the purported relationship between homosexuality and sex crimes. What if our mission with this AIDS-inflicted bedridden criminal was not moral support so much as physical support? What if we were asked to feed this person? What if we were asked to change this person's clothing? You see... It is easy enough to sit in judgment of the NAACP for their struggle to forgive the hatred of a politician like David Duke. On the other hand, each and every one of us has a least of these in our hearts that would probably make us more uncomfortable than holding the bleeding hand of a dying AIDS patient. I've heard some people say in the course of the debate about AIDS research that the standards set by Jesus don't apply in this instance because Jesus wasn't dealing with AIDS in his day. Let me get this straight. Jesus, in his day, 
supposedly didn't encounter a horrendously fatal communicable disease that was feared by all and believed to be inflicted predominantly upon the morally deficient. People, the Bible calls it leprosy. If AIDS patients aren't the lepers of our society, then the reason is that AIDS isn't as feared today as leprosy was in Jesus' day. Jesus healed lepers. He prayed with lepers. He forgave lepers of their sins like many of the others he encountered in his ministry. Without judging the political motives of groups who successfully exiled lepers, Jesus was nevertheless telling them that God would judge their righteousness not based on the love they showed for the person across the street, but for the love they showed to the person so lowly as to be banished from the community altogether. The least of these. As you did it for one of the least of these, you did it to me. The same Christ who is eager to help up sinners as unworthy of his grace as all of us are only asks that we go and do likewise. It seems so simple. As long as a donation here and a pledge there will make the problem go away. But the Lord is asking us personally to feed, clothe, and visit The women of this congregation have helped open our eyes to the challenge we face in evangelism. You see, the groups they interviewed consider themselves to be religious groups in one manner or another. It seems to me that those who have pledged themselves to serve the Lord have as much trouble following through as we imagine the unbelievers would. In our hymn today, we pledge to be one in the Spirit and to walk and work together with all Christians to spread the word of God. Yet I wouldn't doubt that the challenge we've set for ourselves this morning as a congregation would be less than well received by many of our fellow Christians. I suppose that our prayer for all unity to one day be restored may have to begin with the church before we go out and save the entire world. As Christians, we don't always work together. Walking side by side is a sporadic event. Yet, for the most part, the least of our brethren is a common factor to us all. The Reverend Glenn Daniels was here a little more than a year ago. Some of you may remember his sermon. One of the things he preached that still remains strong in my memory was talking about our habit of labeling people and our strong desire to separate out the winners from the losers. I expected him to take the approach that all ministers do, that judgment should be left unto the Lord. Instead of judge not lest ye be judged, though, Glenn turned the problem into an ends versus means argument. He asked us if sinners needed to hear the word of the Lord. He asked us if God calls upon us to forgive. He asked if there is a sin or a crime or an individual that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is incapable of redeeming. Then he said this, If we exclude sinners from the house of the Lord in response to the sins they have committed, we are casting them out of God's house without any consideration of what the will and grace of the Lord may be. We complain about godlessness. You hear it all the time. When we talk about the breakdown of morals in our society, we talk at least as much about the lack of faith as we do about sin in general. 
However, the words of the Reverend Daniels calls to my attention a great irony. Are we not, in fact, blaming the godless for their very godlessness? I think so. Lord, forgive us, but I think so. Much like blaming a starving man for being hungry, or blaming a freezing man for being cold. We Christians are missing our calling by paying too much attention to the assignment of blame. When we exclude a person for being a sinner, then we create his godlessness. Every time we take a sin, like sodomy or adultery, and use that sin to block the sinner from the very words that will bring him salvation, we create the godlessness. Far too often, these exclusions have nothing whatsoever to do with sinning in the first place. We have played a part in creating godless people simply because their race or their politics happen to be different from ours. If I saw a man who was starving to death and I wanted to do for my Lord as Jesus taught in the great judgment, then I surely would give him some food. If that same man was freezing to death from exposure, I would give him the coat off my back until I could find him some shelter. The example applies to the sinner as well. What does a godless person need to cure his ills? Well, the very same thing that every sinner needs to recognize the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. We have lost sheep roaming the hills of our society. Worse yet, a great many of those lost sheep have been kicked out of the flock by misguided shepherds like you and me. Herders who mistakenly believe that the flock would be better off without one lamb or the other. Jesus has made his instructions to us very clear. Not only are we charged with the responsibility to seek out the lost sheep and return them to the flock at all costs more, we are expected to rejoice with every success. Every time we can serve God's salvation under the least of our human brethren, we absolutely must. And as a congregation gathering in Jesus' name, we must prepare ourselves both for the challenge ahead and the celebration to come. Let us pray. Masters of None. Log on to mastersofnone.com. Our DJ name's real. 95% of them are completely fake. There's someone named Rusty Fender, traffic person. Ew. I'm Rusty Fender giving you the traffic. I really hope that that guy gets in a bus accident. Yeah. This would be ironic death. Now your name is Bloody Fender. <laughs> and you're causing the traffic. <laughs> okay, then you got people who just steal famous names. Like George McFly, Jack Daniels, Maverick, and Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, I made the last one up. I made the last one up. It was just like an 18-year-old intern. Hi, everyone. I'm Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> what? Anything with nice. You need those, like, those short-sounding names with that one, too. Chuck Nice. Jack Nice. Benjamin Nice really doesn't work. NPR, try to get edgy by trying to get some cool radio names going on. I'm Bartholomew Nice. <laughs> Bartholomew. Nice to be here on NPR. <laughs> I will cite yeah. Wild Bill Shakespeare is an actual <laughs> radio name. That was actually a before and after puzzle on Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> Masters of None. I'm on Twitter, Masters of None. And on Facebook, Masters of None. 
My pattern with readings from some assembly required has been to put the chapter near the very beginning of the episode, follow up with the different drummer segment almost immediately, in an effort to sort of tie the two together conceptually, I suppose, and then end the episode at the very end after the different drummer with footnotes, or in this case, end notes. And I do intend to get to the end notes. But one more thing I would like to cover before the different drummer today is a quick explanation for the form of the reading of the hymn by Peter Schultes called They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love. It is one section of this particular short story that is not written by me, but it's written by, in this case, by Schultes. But what I chose to do was to read it in a manner that you might think someone who had never heard a hymn performed before, who had never gone to a church opened up a hymnal, and followed along with other more experienced people participating in either an act of worship or an open hymn sing. And when you think about it, for when most of us are handed a set of verses, we don't read the first line across every single stanza and then come back and do the second line across every single stanza, the way a hymn is traditionally written. If you think about it, it's worth the time to go online and just look up some sort of an example of a hymn that you would see in a hymn book and you'll see what I mean. Most of the time with poetry or verse, you just read it down. You don't necessarily read it across. Even if there was a numbering system like one, two, three for the first three verses, it, your eye doesn't normally go there unless you're thinking in a mindset as if I'm reading a, a hymn. This is not the first time I've made this reference. I'm going to call attention to one more thing from the articles section at inappropriateconversation.org. A blog post that I put up on June 13th, 2008, was a poem that I'd written called Tithe. And I think I'll go through it as another example of this same kind of thing to explain sort of my effort to provide the mass maximum amount of respect for Peter Schultes and his words, while noting the irony of what it might mean for someone who was unfamiliar with hymns and didn't hear the music to simply read one. I wrote this in 2013. Some poems, like this one, work better visually. Tithe can be read in multiple ways, two of them crucially. You can read it directly, or you can read it as a hymn. I will do both. Tithe, melody, traditional, season, Pentecost. Jesus woke me up. I thanked him anyway. He wished me well, and Sunday morning, much to my surprise, seeing that my sins confused me, he told me that had been quite a burden. Because he didn't want me, he died for my sins. We talked about old times to build a church. In my shock, I did not. I guess for ten minutes, or seek people who know what to say, or more, would donate their money. Initially, subsequently, ultimately, this relaxed me and convinced me that the times really don't change. That's a straight, traditional poetry reading of tithe. But it also can be read as a hymn. Jesus woke me up Sunday morning, much to my surprise. He told me that he died for my sins. In my shock, I did not know what to say. Initially, this relaxed me and convinced me that the times really don't change. I thanked him anyway, seeing that my sins had been quite a burden. We talked about old times, I guess for ten minutes or more. Subsequently, this relaxed me and convinced me that the times really don't change. He wished me well and confused me because he didn't want me to build a church or seek people who would donate their money. Ultimately, this relaxed me and convinced me that the times really don't change. Tithe, 
from IC underscore Greg, shared at inappropriateconversations.org, June 8th, 2013. Of all the chapters in this Dadaistic, surrealist novella, uh, for picking a different drummer, I found Chapter 7 to be, initially, the most difficult. It has elements of, of a childhood game or experiment uh, merged together with a very realistic, at least to my experience, um, conversation around an editorial board meeting at a daily newspaper, deciding what to put on the editorial page, but also deciding what to do with the front pages of key sections like Section A and also the living and sports pages. Following that up with a serious, heartfelt, sincere exploration of what it would mean to suddenly be a single father and to be a single father through the tragedy of a wife dying in childbirth, losing both a second child and your wife at the same time. And then that ended up with the piece that I'd shared before in Inappropriate Conversations, which I just call the least of these, a sermon. This one told with perhaps a little bit more vocal affect to it, but word for word, pretty much identical to this section of the novella that was shared back in the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations. And then it dawned on me after I looked at all of these different elements that maybe the different drummer in some strange way was kind of obvious. I thought right away of podcaster and online friend Art Eddy. Art's voice has been heard on past Inappropriate Conversations. Well, at least one, probably two. Inappropriate Conversations 100 was a, a backstory evolution of this particular podcast. It is available on the website at inappropriateconversations.org. And I'm pretty sure a clip from Masters of None was shared or at least referred to. And also, Inappropriate Conversations number 178 from December 19th, 2015, was a tribute to the website that brought me, Art, and many of our friends together. And that one was built around uh, a concept introduced by Masters of None, a top eight and a half countdown for all the podcasts that were at that time on that network. That network included podcasts that have since split off and gone their own way. Starbase 66 for one, Masters of None for another. The reason that I mention those two in particular is the very first time that I ventured out to meet face-to-face -face somebody that I had only gotten to know via the internet, where our association was podcaster to listener or podcaster to podcaster, was when I made a trip to Washington, D.C. to attend a conference and took advantage of that opportunity to meet one of the key members of Starbase 66. That led, about a year later, to a follow-up meeting with another member, the Admiral of Starbase 66. And about a year or so after that, I got the opportunity to go to New York City's Comic-Con, and among the booths there was a booth for the podcast Masters of None. This was the first time that I'd met Art face-to-face, but I've met Art Eddie a couple of times since then, face-to-face. -face. One with another podcast meetup, this one in Toronto in 2011. And then once recently while on vacation. My wife's work will, from time to time, take her places where she needs to take a business trip. And I've been lucky on more than one occasion to tag along. I especially enjoy tagging along when, for me, it's a vacation day, where my role is nothing more than a chauffeur. And when I know somebody who lives in the area that she's going there for work, 
and I can go there for, for pleasure, if you will. And every time I've met Art, it has been a pleasure. He is uh, somebody who has shared interest with me, despite being more than a decade younger, that we, uh, I'm probably a, a strange and unique blend, I think, for some in what I might describe as, uh, lovingly describe as the geek community, of having a lot of passion about sports, also having a lot of passion about things like science fiction and other geeky pursuits, being open-minded about things like board games. I'm not a video game player, but I'm open-minded about it. Love music. Serious, deep, deep, deep fan of movies, films, even to some degree television. And all of this popular culture stuff is right inside what I would describe as the Masters of None wheelhouse for that one show. But Art is not just a podcaster in a single stream. He's actively been part of years, in fact, probably since the very beginning, of something called Life of Dad. And I had the opportunity a few years ago to be part of one of the podcasts, to be a guest on one of those shows, and told him at the time that the reason that I said yes, um, kind of on you know last minute, late notice, was that the Life of Dad network, the Life of Dad concept, and the podcast in particular, were all things which I had wished had been available to me when I was a younger man, because uh, there really wasn't anything when I was, you know, uh, the father of very young children that was focused on me, uh, helping me to be a better dad, and addressing some of the issues that are maybe unique to dads. So quickly, from a biographical perspective, not going anywhere near Wikipedia this time, I'll just share that uh, you can find out more about Art Eddie on Twitter, at Art Eddie 3 is his dad at work Twitter handle, and obviously at Life of Dad. On Twitter, Art describes himself as author and podcaster. I write for Life of Dad Show, ManJunior.com, Masters of None, Dune Sea Times. He's a father, husband, geek, sneakerhead, and lover of sports. And again, it's that combination of geek and sports and podcasting that some people from time to time tell me they find to be completely inconceivable, or at least slightly incongruous. But, you know, there you have it. These interests that he shared on Twitter kind of hit it right where it's at. Fatherhood, Masters of None, comedy, popular culture. Dune Sea Times is a, uh, literally calls itself Star Wars stuff. And I don't know very many people that I would rank higher than art when it comes to being a fan of Star Wars. I've got two or three friends out there where I consider myself to be in the shallow end of the pool when you consider the depth of Star Wars passion that some of us in my online community have. Art does product reviews, writes about things that people could use, products that people might be interested in. From what I can tell, manjunior.com has a lot of that going on. But really, for me, the place where I'm connecting and where I'm going to lean in a little bit is Life of Dad. Because in the section of this chapter of Some Assembly Required that I call, How Am I Supposed to Live Without?, it really cuts to the core of that passion about what it means to be a father and what it means when anything sort of either threatens that or maybe in an odd way activates it. That art has been this. On the back of the book that was published just uh, last year, I believe, The Life of Dad, Reflections on Fatherhood from Today's Leaders, Icons, and Legendary Dads, written by John Finkel and Art Eddy, or in many ways, Edited and curated is maybe the, the right word for that. It is a written version of conversations, some of which have been shared online over the years at uh, websites like lifeofdad.com or Facebook. 
The bio for Art says this. He's one of the co-founders of Life of Dad. He hosts and produces the Life of Dad show and the Geek Show, as well as blogs for the site. I encountered the Geek Show more most often with like uh, Facebook Live presentations, sort of a, a lunch hour thing. And it's funny that before this um, shelter-in-place, work-from-home scenario that is so characterized the year 2020, I was the kind of person who didn't really spend much time with Facebook Live or re-watching previously broadcast Facebook Lives. The, the Facebook video thing is really, probably still is not really my thing. But obviously I've got more of an appetite for it than I ever did before because a lot of the ways that I do everything that I do from a work perspective is now morphed into what might be described as an online video experience. I've got a pretty good social media footprint, but going all the way back to the era of of email chains and web forums, but a lot of that was typewritten, that I interact, I think, I engage, I connect with hands-on keyboard. So I'm still getting used to the idea of that same thing happening with video. Uh, even the first sort of uh, chat room experiences I've ever had were chat room experiences where I was listening to a live broadcast of something that was probably going to be released as a podcast and chatting while the conversation was going on. But now watching and chatting, kind of a different dynamic. And of course, Art's been doing this on Facebook for a very long time. The book Sleeve Bio also mentions that Art has worked in radio in New York City, New Jersey, and New Hampshire. From Life of Dad at the launch of the new podcast Art of Conversation, which by my recollection more or less replaced the uh, Life of Dad After Show. Life of Dad After Show is the one that I appeared in. In the first handful or call it half dozen episodes, it was focusing on dad bloggers in particular. I don't necessarily qualify as a blogger. I'm still well and truly a podcaster and Fatherhood only creeps into the mix because inappropriate conversations as a concept is all about the mix. Uh, The about page on inappropriateconversations.org just calls it out that the whole point is mixing and merging politics, religion, sex, drugs, rock and roll, other elements of culture, and not forcing things to be segregated. So I don't have the laser-like focus that the Life of Dad show had, or the Life of Dad after show for that matter. Here's the about page for the podcast section, Art of Conversation. Welcome to the Art of Conversation. We are pleased to have another podcast here at Life of Dad, and we focus on the show on dad writers. Each week, host Art Eddy showcases a father in the dad community. Topics range from sports, to movies, to comics, to video games, to technology, to parenthood, to anything that comes up, really. Absolutely nothing is off limits on the Art of Conversation podcast. And... So that's one of them. So Art being a producer and a key uh, founder, formulator, encourager, frankly, of podcasts in many forms, including, in this case, his own. Artoffatherhood.net is really kind of one of the art-specific web pages out there. There's an about page there as well. And uh, he introduces his wife and his kids and basically says he has a passion for fatherhood enjoys talking to other dads about their fatherhood journey, and has created a few podcasts that focus on fatherhood. He's been responsible for securing over 500 guests on a variety of platforms, including hundreds of A-list fathers throughout pop culture, sports, and the business landscape. If you'd like to read more about that, the book that in 2019 he and John Finkel put out, The Life of Dad Book, is a great way of reviewing a lot of that material. 
And again, noting that he's worked in radio, he basically has a background in both radio and journalism. It's when I look at the concepts that merged together. In 1994, chapter 7, the next to the last chapter of Some Assembly Required, it's a deep dive into the childhood experience, the childhood notion of play, and journalism. Really there with a story that's got the managing editor, the editor-in-chief, the publisher, and the lifestyle editor, along with the opinion editor, arguing about what should go in the paper the next day, the day after that, how they're tackling the biggest local issues, and short of changing the names to protect the innocent and relocating the city to a different part of the state of Oklahoma, in some ways, there was a that was a bit of literal recollection of conversations and the way the ebb and flow in those relationships kind of worked. Art and I have a background in journalism that's in common as well. But the main thing is passion for family, passion for fatherhood. When I looked at this story and thought, yeah, this one's ending with quite literally a sermon. I could name a lot of podcasters who are dear friends of mine who might not might not connect with that concept or certainly not with the material. And I don't believe for one second that Art and I would align lockstep uh, issue by issue across all things that I'm passionate about and all things that he's passionate about. But I'll tell you, pretty comfortable naming Art as a different drummer in a chapter of a novella that ends with a sermon. And that says a lot about him and his character and the fact that he has worked in so many different aspects of the podcast media, being somewhat underappreciated, in my opinion, just for his ability to work on different forums with different people and be so effective at it. An episode is missing, in my opinion, of some of these some of these shows if Art isn't there. That he, to me, is the thing that brought me to Life of Dad as an interested party. Somebody I knew from other media, Masters of None in particular, was doing this other thing, seemed interesting. I migrated there because of Art, and I consume pretty freely the material that's available there. Again, there's no question about it. Art led me to that place. End Notes for Some Assembly Required, Chapter 7. Pink Panther. Animated teleplay. Produced by Mirish Jeffrey D.F. Extinct Pink. Episode produced in 1969. Who Was That Lady? Filmed by George Sidney. 1960. Written by Norman Krasna. Adapted by Krasna. They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love. Peter Schultes. F.E.L. Church Publications Limited. 1966. Ezekiel 34:17, Holy Bible, Good News Translation. Luke 15, verses 4 through 7, Holy Bible, Good News Translation. Wolves, song by Stephanie Davis, EMI Blackwood Music, Incorporated, 1990, performed by Garth Brooks, 1990, on the album No Fences. Matthew 25:31 to 46, Holy Bible, Revised Standard Version. Turning the Other Cheek, Matthew 5, 39, Holy Bible, untranslated. One in the Spirit, they'll know we are Christians by our love, opposite. All unity may one day be restored, Ibid. Glenn Daniels, reference to songwriter Glenn Danzig, 
from whose song Godless, the theme of this reference has been taken. Godless, song by Danzig, 1992. Lyrics published by Evil Live Music, 1991 and 1992, written by Glenn Danzig. Godless feeling in me, night after night. Godless feeling in me, born of their lies. I've taken all of this and more and that's for sure. I can't believe in all your pain. Under the draining of a Christian deity's blood, you tell your children they're insane. I couldn't take it anymore. I had to listen to my heart. I couldn't love it anymore. And so you leave me godless. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Holy Bible, Matthew, chapter 7, verse 1, untranslated. Thanks for listening. Godless feeling in me night after night. Oh, godless feeling in me born of their lies. I've taken all of this and more and that's for sure. I can't believe in all your pain Under the draining of a Christian deity's blood You tell your children they're insane I couldn't take it anymore I had to listen to my heart I couldn't love it anymore and so you leave me godless. Just wrap your tentacles of hate around my life. I've taken more than you could ever give. You can't believe that someone challenges your right. I'm gonna send you back your pain. I couldn't take it anymore. I had to listen to my heart. I couldn't love it anymore. And so you leave me godless.
show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.